You're listening to the Who Are You Really podcast. A podcast that features interviews with the captivating people we've met. Liv and I have learned that everybody has a story. Whether it surprises you, shocks you, or resonates with you, stories have a way of connecting us, offering new perspectives, and acting as a reminder that we're not in this alone. And there's nothing we love more than bridging people together in our little big planet. We'll get vulnerable, raw, and real with our guests from all over the world. I'm your host, Lydia Clemensovich. And I'm your host, Olivia Poglianich. Welcome to our safe space. No judgment, no egos, all the feels and all the fun. So pull up a seat, get cozy, and let's dig a little deeper together. So today on the Who Are You Really podcast, we have the lovely Tina Tucci, a kindred spirit friend of mine that I met in Bali just days away from Lid. Like their paths should have totally crossed. Um, Tina and I went on a trip with a co-working space to the Gilly Islands. For those of you who don't know, it's a beautiful place without any cars, just horse-drawn buggy carriages and the island itself you could walk around in an hour maybe. So it's an incredible space for spiritual experiences, we'll just say that. And Tina and I bonded over many a story about her decades upon decades of wisdom and travel tales, experiences in love and loss, and she is just such an incredible person who is not not afraid to go deep in the slightest. 100%. I concur with everything you just said, Liv. And I can't believe we didn't cross paths when we were both in Bali, but everything, most things happen for a reason. And I believe we were meant to meet now in virtue of this podcast and sharing her story through it. And I was just enamored by all of Tina's insights and knowledge and all the experiences she's gone through. She is 60 years old and she's lived quite a life. And one of the main things that we talked about and you'll, you'll have to listen to really learn more about is her cancer diagnosis story. And I think Liv and I both were just taken aback by, you know, how she felt when she learned about the diagnosis, how it impacted the relationships in her life, and then how she started to look at her life from a new way. And that on top of all of her travel experiences, it was just incredible. I I felt like I was listening to a TED Talk sometimes, honestly, (laughs) and it it really moved me. So I can't wait for you all to listen. So well said, Lid. I kicked up my feet for this one. I took a seat back. I was like, this is why, you know, we do this. Tina is definitely wise beyond us. I mean, she did a lot of the talking and I did a lot of the learning and listening and she has gone through a lot and has a lot of stories to share. So like Lyd said, from cancer to travel to divorce to finding love later in life, enjoy because there's a lot here to unpack. Welcome to this episode of Who Are You Really? Today we have the lovely, the fierce, and the fabulous Tina Tucci on air with us, calling from the UK. How are you, Tina? Doing good today. Lovely to talk to you both. 
so nice to see you again. I, I had the pleasure of meeting Tina in Bali as well. I think her and Lyd were just days apart from meeting each other. We were all in the same place. And Tina and I are kindred souls who had a lot of adventures, you know, pre-pandemic days. It, it feels like a lifetime ago, though, doesn't it, Tina? Oh, it does. Who would have believed a year ago that how our lives would have changed so much? <laughs> Mm, yeah, I know you and I are both big summer chasers. What would you say, like, how, how have you been handling, I guess, the lack thereof, summer and sun and those English winters? I, I think I spent most of my adult life trying to avoid English winters, you know. <laughs> so now, you know, uh, I'm luckily I'm, you know, I'm in a beautiful place. My, I live with my sister who has put me up through this kind of crazy time. And um, she lives on a, with the stables with lots of horses and dogs and cats and grandchildren. And my parents live next door. So it's been a great kind of time to really spend a lot of time with my family. Um, and the summer was amazing. And this winter is killing me. <laughs> you know, it's so gray. I'm so desperate for some sun. Mm, and, I'm you know, as well, being considered high risk, um, I'm just on almost permanent lockdown. So. Um, you know, I have taken a couple of uh, trips to the U.S., which were very important for work. Um, so that was allowed. You know. mm, just for work? Or I think I know a little more than the audience who might be listening. But what else do you have in the U.S., Tina? Some work which allowed me to spend time with my um, lovely new boyfriend who I met um, two weeks before I had a cancer diagnosis and had to come flying home to the, to the UK. <laughs> so we have had an online relationship um, for going on almost a year now. And um, it's been utterly crazy with the pandemic. And, but um, we've got very creative in um, keeping this relationship exciting and interesting. And, you know, certainly when I flew to Connecticut, um, Rodney gave me the most amazing time when I managed to get some of my, you know, because travel is my life and I just have such a huge travel bug that it um, kept me going through months and months of uh, the torture of lockdown. You know? How long have you been in this relationship then now, Tina? Almost a year. Almost a year. Yes. And you met online. We met on Bumble. On Bumble. <laughs> I was visiting my brother in Florida and I was planning an extended U.S. You know, visit. You know, because I live in U.S. most of the time when I'm not globetrotting. <laughs> you know? um, so U.S. is my base a lot of the time. Um, and so I was visiting my brother and just, you know, some friends in Bali had persuaded me to put Bumble on my phone. I'd never done online dating. It was completely new to me. And, you know, in Bali, not much was happening at all. And then I got back, flew into Fort Lauderdale and my phone blew up. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> you know, here I am at 59 and dating looks like it's going to be fun. Um, so, you know, I, uh, Rodney was on vacation in um, Fort Lauderdale. It was his last day there. So we just met for a coffee just for something to do. And, you know, there was just like this instant sort of bond. We had very similar life stories. We, you know, both been entrepreneurs and small he was he's still a small business owner I was still a small business owner so so it was you know it would just then suddenly it was you know lockdown COVID every the whole world was going crazy and you know we've been talking online for about 
a week and we wanted to meet up. So I flew off to Connecticut and had this wonderful long weekend. It was really great. And then, you know, I got back and got a cancer diagnosis. (laughs) So, you know, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and very quickly found out, I mean, you know, the hospitals in the US and the UK have all been amazing. And I found out within about three days of the breast cancer diagnosis that it was actually triple negative breast cancer, which is quite aggressive. And, you know, we had the whole lockdown. We didn't know if we were going to be able to fly. We didn't know what was going to be going on in the world. This was March of last year. So it was really early days. So I was very afraid that I won't be able to get back to my family in the UK, which was definitely the best place for me. Um, so I flew back, you know, made an appointment with the oncologist there, got all my records from the big hospital in America and uh, went to see the oncologist after they'd looked at, uh, I'd had another mammogram, and this is all within about two weeks. It was all so quick. Um, only to hear, the, you know, have the oncologist tell me that I probably had less than two years to live and the cancer had spread to the liver and the lungs. So terrifying. it's absolutely terrifying. And definitely probably the worst 20 minutes of my life, <laughs> you know, when getting that news, you know. Mm. what did you immediately do after you found the diagnosis it was a gray horrible cold wet day in england and it took me 20 minutes to get back to a double vodka (laughs) so that's what i first thing i did was i slugged down a double vodka (laughs) i know a lot of people think what would they do how would they feel if they got this news and you know and I've thought that as well. And I think really it's like, well, look at what you do in your life. And that's how you can react. So the next thing, after waking down the double vodka, um, the next day I started uh, looking for books that could help me, looking for what I could read, um, looking, you know, and some friends had recommended some wonderful books. Uh, one is Thich Nhat Hanh, The Art of Living. And uh, Rodney recommended this to me. My boyfriend's a Buddhist and he's introduced me to a lot of great Buddhist philosophy. Uh, This book really made a difference. It just really made it possible to be with that news. Um, And then the other one, a friend sent me this book and it's, I know we're not on TV, so (laughs) it's Dying to Be Me by Anita Mojani. It's really amazing because this lady um, was riddled with cancer. And she was taken into hospital and she was just dying. And she had this amazing um, near-death experience where, and everything about her near-death experience really resonated with a lot of things I've read about near-death experiences. And combining that with the Buddhist philosophy, you know, I really got an ability to feel like death isn't the end. You know, whether we have a near-death experience and come back again, and after she had her near-death experience, she went into radical remission. There was no cancer in her body. And she's gone on to live a wonderful life. And it's very well documented. And she's done stories all over the world telling people about this experience. And it's just incredible. I mean, the cancer just went. And she had it completely through her body. Both these books were wonderful because it helped me deal with the fear of death. And just the idea that death isn't the end is very comforting, you know. And that's since, beautiful, Tina. Yeah. And you're giving me the chills. And yeah. I think that's such a... I <laughs> That's such a mind frame shift. And I think so many people are afraid of death as like the number one thing that they want to avoid their whole lives, right? Mm-hmm. And 
it sounds like that was a pretty transformative book for you to read. I mean, go on. You're, you're definitely telling an amazing story. I'm entranced. I just wanted to say, like, you're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> and, you know, at that point, it was, okay, I'm not going to be afraid of death, but I'm not going to wake up every morning thinking I've got less than two years to live. You know, I want to, you know, I bought a, a bunch of books that people recommended on dying. And I was like, okay, but I'm not ready to read those yet. I'm not ready to die yet. I've still got too much li living to do. I love my life so much. You know, I'd finally really got my life to a point that I absolutely adored and loved it. You know, So that's no time to die. You know, I was 59 years old. I'm 60 now. And it's like, okay, I'm finally living my life that I love and living it passionately and powerfully. So there's no way I'm dying now. Um, so really, I've kind of focused on the radical recovery and educated myself about my disease as much as possible. And I think, you know, I've been amazingly lucky with the health service here in the UK. And I would say that the treatment I'm getting is state-of-the-art as far as what the drugs are available right now. But, you know, I had to do quite a bit of study and intervention to make that happen. And you really get a sense of how important it is to be your own advocate. You need to know about as much about your disease as you possibly can. You need to know about what uh, treatments are out there because this is your life. And I very nearly didn't get these life-saving drugs. But then, you know, I mix, I mix that up as well with everything I can do on a spiritual and on, a, on an alternative level because um, I'm trying to cover all my bases, you know. That's incredible, Tina, because I think I've I've been pleasantly like involved in your story as you've been sharing with some people on, on Facebook along the way. And my heart went out to you when you first sent that message. And I didn't even realize it was just two weeks after you had met Rodney. Like what a what a whirlwind of highs and lows in such a short amount of time. Definitely it sounds like this book is is one great way and in coming into terms with Buddhism. But I remember the thing that I was always so so shocked and like, I don't know how to articulate this, but like looking up to you for was just how positive you were along the way, even though I'm sure this is extremely terrifying for you and you've never gone through anything like it before. How do you think you've stayed so positive throughout this insanely difficult year, not only for your own life and mortality, but coupled with what's going on in the country and the world, it's like, how, how are you just such a wonder woman? You're so strong. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to say that during that trip, I was just like, how did you get to be so wise, so young? You know, it's taken, it, you know, I was just like, oh my God, this woman who has so much wisdom and she's so young. How is this possible? Oh. So, <laughs> 59, 60 years to get anywhere near that much wisdom. And I put it down to the amount you've traveled because travel is definitely the great educator. It truly is, you know, um, and plus the fact that you're amazing. But <laughs> you're so cute. <laughs> no, travel is definitely like yeah. the number one thing that's taught me anything in this world, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, it's, um, and you know, I have down days as well, and especially with the chemotherapy, because the, it does come with depression. And, you know, I'm now into my eighth cycle of chemotherapy with immunotherapy as well. And, you know, I have two days a week where I just sleep all day. And, you know, just lately, the last two cycles, those two days have come with a huge amount of depression and I turn into a, a psycho. 
<laughs> and you would not want to meet me on those days. And Rodney, bless him, and my sister, bless her, just, just de- you know, have to de- deal with me. And, you know, I told Rodney his job through this was to make me laugh. And that was, and keep me happy. And, you know, my sister is my warm, fuzzy, huggy person who gives me all the love and support and protection and wants to wrap me in cotton wool, which is difficult when you've been someone who's always been very independent and loves to travel and, you know, but she's just been amazing. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. It's just living with my family. I need to be strong for them. You know, I don't want to, um, I don't want them being sad or, you know, trying to deal with, you know, their daughter's dying, you know. So I just, you know, I decided I can't wake up every day thinking that. I'm just going to wake up every day and think, okay, this is an an opportunity to live in the moment. Um, But the hardest thing is trying to decide, do I try and work? You know, there's days when chemo brain just makes me stupid. (laughs) And, you know, so I've worked very little. I just do small projects, things where there's very little pressure. Just really try and focus on doing things I love. Uh, my niece lives here on the same property with a um, four-year-old and one-year-old baby. And, oh, my God, are these kids are just amazing. And because I traveled so much, I missed out on my sister's children when they were growing up. So now I get to do it with their children. And it, it's, it, that's just wonderful. I mean, when you look at this baby and she's laughing, it just gives you so much reason to love the cycle of life and to understand that death is part of that cycle, you know. We couldn't have this birth without death, so, you know. <laughs> Holy moly, Tina. You're just spewing all sorts of wisdom and, and really deep love. What was the reaction of your your partner Rodney and your family when you revealed all of this to them? Well, for Rodney, because we'd only known each other a couple of weeks or maybe three or, or maybe a month, we'd known each other. So mm-hmm. for him, it was just like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> you know? I was thinking wow. that Rodney was um, a keeper. <laughs> he's like, oh. And, you know, he said many times when, you know, mostly because lockdown and covid and you know there were many times when he's like this wasn't really what i was planning on you know? <laughs> and i just tell him oh it doesn't matter i'm amazing and you know you, you know, <laughs> i like think it you. wasn't <laughs> your plan either <laughs> yeah it wasn't my plan either. so just stick with it i'm sorry it might get better <laughs> um, but you know for my family oh, it was so hard you know my parents are 86 um 87 you know, we live, we usually live a long time with my family. Um, so 60 is seen as very young to be looking at a death sentence. Um, you know, again, for my sister, it was really hard. I mean, the first day I went for chemo, she, she's determined I can't drive to chemo, even though I can. You know? <laughs> and, um, Protective. Is she older than you? She's two years older than me. And <laughs> she's the matriarch of the family. You know, she's taken over from my mum. Now my mum's got old and she's the total matriarch and she is so... She does everything for everybody, looks after everybody, you know, and that means she gets to boss everybody around. (laughs) (laughs) So she wrapped me in cotton wool. And anyway, she took me to chemo and she just cried the whole time I was in chemo, you know, because thinking about this poison going through my body and everything, and it it was really hard for them. And and it was very hard, the decision of how much to tell my parents 
and when to tell them was was very difficult too. Because you don't want to scare them, but you obviously don't want to hide anything from them? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's impossible. You know, when you think, you know, if I'm, if I have an off day, they need to kind of really face what I'm up against. And, you know, you don't want them to be surprised. You need to have them. So we kind of fed it to them slowly, you know, really said, you know, this is, we're not just looking at, um, breast cancer will be easily cured here. We're looking at breast cancer that doesn't usually have a very good outcome. Wow. And there was no inclination of this, Tina? Like this came completely out of left field for you? you would, you'd been perfectly healthy before this? or When I was in Bali, I got pain, a pain in that breast. Mm. Oh. And I had felt, um, you know, I had felt a lump um, it wasn't a lump. See, I'd never felt a lump, and that was what was so strange about it. Plus, I had a mammogram two two years ago, and the mammogram was clean, so I had no indication. So when I got the pain in my breast in Bali, I was like, "Oh my god, what's this breast cancer? Oh god, you know." And then I thought, "Well, I put on a bit of weight. Maybe my bras are too tight." <laughs> so I found this really great loose yoga bra, you know, and, it's, and the pain went away. So I was like, "Okay, cool." So you know, I got to the US, and I knew I was going to be there. You know, I was there a long trip. I thought I'd better get this checked out. And I was so busy kind of because I came back to a couple of word, work projects. Now, what I should have known in Bali was I didn't have my energy. And I was tired all the time and I was having a hard time doing the work I planned to do when I was out there. And, you know, I just kept putting it down to the humidity and the heat and big denial, you know. I'm very good at denial. So when I got back to the US, I just all this work landed on my table and, you know, I suddenly discovered Bumble, which was great fun. <laughs> and then I met Rodney. You know, I just was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go and get that mammogram. I'm going to go and get that mammogram. And then when I got back from the first weekend with Rodney, the pain started again. So I was like, okay, I've got to get this sorted. So I went straight for a mammogram then. The day later, they called me up and said, you have to come in and see the doc- your doctor in um, Florida. And um, he immediately sent me over to... Um, the cancer clinic there which is really good one which cleveland clinic and they were amazing and excellent and really got me results very fast i feel like you rodney probably may not agree but i think you met him at the perfect time like (laughs) this buddhist calming mindset like grounding mindset right you know you're the free spirit the cloud and he's the anchor who provides you that sense of support and i don't know did you did you have a buddhist philosophy in your life before you met rodney was this something you'd always been interested in or yes it was something okay. i'd always been interested in um but i tended to to be like i'm sort of a little bit of a new age um shopper you know <laughs> i like to swap I, I read a lot about a different spiritual paths but I've never really firmly committed to one spiritual path. Right. And it, again, it's one of those things where you think, oh, well, I've got time to do that. You know, I'll do that later when I'm not so busy. You know? mm. <laughs> I think one of the things that really had a huge effect on my life is I, had, I have ADD, which when I was growing up, nobody knew anything about it and it was never diagnosed. And I think that really has affected a lot of how um, I've lived my life. When you get this kind of diagnosis as well, you tend to analyze your life and you look for a theme and you know a story to it and to me the things that came up was always being a little bit different never really fitting in 
and survival and travel. It was, you know, I lived my life on the edge a lot, but I always have that survival instinct that pulls me back. And travel has always been the real motivating force to my life. You know, that's what I see as my kind of theme. You know? That's so great, Tina. Like, I think we all can kind of relate with the whole rebel with a cause kind mm-hmm. of adventurous spirit to have this, you know, you were the original digital nomad. And I think it would be incredible to dive into some of your stories. We could probably make a whole podcast series just about your life. <laughs> what? I'm, I'm really curious, I guess, what was the first trip you ever took that gave you the travel bug? And I'd also be curious to hear along the way about some of your experiences without like technology because you're our first traveler we've spoken to on air that did this when it was really difficult to do now we just you know book a hostel on our iphone two hours before we get there you you had to do it the hard way i feel like there was a a really pure time in travel where you really went you showed up and then you just heard somebody say this place is amazing and you had never heard about it before so, exactly. Yeah, I'm so curious about all of that. <laughs> it, exactly. And you, you, it is amazing. The difference is just phenomenal as to, it's a whole different experience. And it was, you know, I love that I've got to try it both ways and can really kind of sort of feel the difference. So I first, I started traveling at 19 and I was living, I grew up in Manchester, which is a very um, gray, cold industrial city. But at that time, it had an amazing music scene. And punk rock was just getting going, um, new age music. And then also, this, the hippie era was kind of overlapping. Uh, so the clubs there and the music coming out of Manchester was phenomenal. But along with that music, there was also a vibrant drug culture, <laughs> which was very much tied to, the, to that. It kind of goes along with the my idea that I never really quite fit in because of the ADD. I I went to a very academic uh, convent school and, you know, it was really hard for me to live up to what my SATs were telling them I should be able to do. (laughs) So I I was always, they always decided I was lazy and I was just, you know, I fell in love with, books about that were very much based on this rebel you know one of the very first books that really inspired was me was on the road by jack kerouac and you know reading that i was like okay this is it this is my life i'm going to be on the road um so i ran away from home at 16 and was very much living on that alternate culture in manchester um but that's kind of when the survival side of me kicked in and i I thought if i just hang around here doing this kind of thing much longer I'm not going to make 20 <laughs> mm. so I'd fallen in love with France just through the books and the art you know I love the French impressionists and the novels of Colette just you know I read every single one I was you know and so I thought okay that's it I have to get to France so I found one of my friends who was interested in traveling and we had enough money to survive for about 10 days in France so we got on the ferry and we hitched down to the south of the France and we didn't speak any French between us or, or Spanish or anything. Uh, it was absolutely, you know, no language. And we, first of all, we started off in Spain in the Basque country and I fell in love with that part of Spain. And then it was like hitching down through Monaco 
um, and into France and, you know, just beautiful, beautiful countryside. And we got to the south of France and I was like, okay, I never want to leave here. It's wonderful. But, you know, my money's running out very quickly, you know, and I need to find how to stay here. You know, what's, you know, there has to be some work. And Britain wasn't even in the common market then. So we weren't even legally supposed to be working there. So just kind of hanging around, we saw that there was a lot of people who looked like they were from England, walking around the beach, shouting, Ben your palm, de monde glass, which is apple donuts, ice lollies, you know. <laughs> And they had these big trays of apple donuts and their cooler full of ice lollies and drinks. Um, so it's like, okay, this looks interesting. And so we spoke to people and managed to hook up with the guy who was giving out these concessions. And you'd pick up your apple donuts at the beginning of the day, walk up and down the beach, sell as many as you could, come back, give him his share of the money and keep your share of the money. And there was also um, a campground that was going to be knocked down and developed the showers were still working it was only cold water but the showers were still working so most people were squatting on this campground and that was just an amazing experience and I met a lot of people from all over the world and particularly a bunch of girls from Holland who you know I definitely got that um, connection with you know the summer came to the end and I was doing a um, associate's degree trying to get into university at night back in England and I went back to England and I lasted about two weeks I was like I can't stand this <laughs> you know? too conventional for you too conventional it was just not going to work so you know again I just packed up and hit the road and um, went off to Guernsey which is this beautiful island between France and England did a stint of waitressing and then it was summer again so it was like great back to France and my apple donuts you know? <laughs> You know, at this point, I was like, okay, there's got to be a little bit more money I can make out of this. So I realized that I could fill my, I could go to the supermarket, buy a bunch of cold drinks, fill my cooler with those, and I would be able to make more money because all I'm paying is supermarket prices. So this was my first little entrepreneurial spin on the whole <laughs> thing. You know? And you know, I love to tell people because of, because of the shock value. Of course, we were topless. You know, here we were in the south. <laughs> of <things. laughs> you just yeah. changed the whole story I was picturing in my head, Tina. But everybody on the beach was topless. So, you know, if you're wandering up and down the beach and you've got a top on in the south of France, then you're going to look strange. So, but it you does have strange with your top off. Yeah, it does <laughs> add a nice you know, little shark value. Oh, yeah, I used to sell apple donuts topless. You know? Wow. <laughs> it's a title for our like, New, York, like, yeah. New York Times article. I was selling apple donuts while topless. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So many people would click on that. But I think my most embarrassing moment was, you know, at least three times a day, I'd go back to the supermarket to fill up my cooler with more, more drinks. And there was one time. Quick question: I walked, Did you have to put your top on to go into the supermarket? Exactly. This is the thing. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I went in once and I forgot, and I suddenly realised why all the boys stuck in the shelves are kind of looking at me and grinning. And you know, it's so funny. It gave me a real sense of context. Here we are, two minutes down the road on the beach, perfectly fine. Walking to the supermarket. This is the most embarrassing moment of my life. <laughs> What's um, a place that you spent the longest? What, is it France or is it somewhere else? No, it was Greece. Mm -hmm. So again, once the summer ended and I was determined not to go back to England, it was, then it was a uh, great picking. And again, this goes back to, you know, you find this out just through word of mouth, where are the places to go? 
uh, you wander through a lot of villages, hitchhiking through villages, just going to the local taverners, trying to find out where are they hiring, you know. Um, so, you know, and I would, I have total respect for agricultural laborers. I did that for two months of my life and I never want to do it again. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we'd be picking grapes and, and the whole kind of bunch of people who grew up there were really good grape pickers and would just leave you standing in the dust and you'd be so embarrassed trying to, you know, go along your, your line, your vine and catch up. We were staying at this really nice farm and there was a couple of guys there who were chefs and they would make these amazing picnics. Well, you know, you have this incredible picnic, you know, halfway through the day and you've got all, you know, wine with lunch always. And then, you know, then you have to get up and pick grapes again. And you're like, no, kill me now. You know, you just see all these lines of vines stretching out in front of you. And you're like, oh my God. Um, but then from there, with the money saved from there, we kind of traveled down Italy. And the nice thing about this was, you know, it was, I would pick up people to travel with in you know in certain situations and it was always changing you know so i spent mm. some time in holland with some of the girls i met there how did uh, you guys stay in touch sorry sorry to interrupt but this goes back to the technology thing like we all just add each other on facebook or instagram like what do you do post restand you know whenever you stay anywhere for more than a month you find the post office you sign up for post restand and then you write each other letters but where do the letters go if you don't have a home well you know some most of the time people would, one of you at least would have a home. One of you would be traveling. You know, my friends were in Holland. I'm like, hey, can I swing by and spend a month in your beautiful country? <laughs> Couch surfing, I think, would be the, the uh, equivalent today. <laughs> you did all of these things before any of them were popularized. Like before everyone went to Australia and picked fruit, Tina got it covered in the south of France. <laughs> Before couch surfing exists, you got that covered too. <laughs> right. This particular trip, um, after the grape picking, I really wanted to go to Greece. And again, it was all to, to do with a book. Um, there's a book called My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell, which has since been made into a TV series. But that book made me fall in love with the island of Corfu. But we've been traveling down through Italy and we'd spent all our great picking money. I had enough money for one night on Corfu. <laughs> you know? And um, <clears throat> the idea was then to go to Crete and pick oranges. You know, landed in Corfu and there was a lot of people who I'd known from the hostels. And that was another thing. You'd stay in the new hostels and you would make connections that way and you'd kind of keep in touch and you'd bump into people who you'd met at the other hostel. and that. So you kind of got this whole traveler's network going. I went to Corfu and that night I started this romance with this most beautiful guy I've ever seen, you know, who I later married. You know, many, uh, many adventures down the road. You know. uh, how old were you when you first met this guy? I was 21. You were also the pre-Mamma Mia. Yes. <laughs> Falling in love with Greece and Greece. So you were also a trailblazer of one of the most popular musicals. And, you know, the funny thing is, if you saw, I walked into the bar and saw this guy who was deeply tanned, you know, the shaggiest beard and the darkest hair, uh, but just like the most good looking guy I'd ever seen outside of the movies. I mean, he was gorgeous. And, um, but I thought, you know, he looks like he's probably Greek. And, you know, people said, be careful with the Greek man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So I kept, you know, going towards him in the bar. I couldn't resist. It was like this moth to a flame. And then I heard the poshest English accent I'd ever heard. So he was English. And, you know, that led to me staying on Corfu for two weeks. And then he came with me to Crete to pick oranges. Now, the story behind that is that we got to Crete to pick oranges. And the common market was decided they weren't going to pay the Cretan farmers what they wanted for the oranges. Do you mean like the EU at the time? What's, What's the common market? Yeah. Yeah, the EU. Okay. The common market is the EU. Greece wasn't part of the common market at that point, mm-hmm. but they sold all their oranges to the, to the EU. And the EU was offering them a really horrible lowball price. And so they just said, well, we're not going to do it. We're just going to leave them and let them rot on the trees. You know, Chris and I are here in um, Crete and, you know, we've got very little money. <laughs> you know, I had no money. I'd run out of money in Corfu. So we're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And, you know, and I'm, this is the start of, you know, it's the beginning of a romance. So you always are a little bit more careful about what you're prepared to do, you know, when you have a new boyfriend. And um, <laughs> we asked around and everyone said, well, the girls are all working in the bars. And I said, like, okay, that sounds interesting. I can, I've done bar work before. I said, well, the problem is the um, tourist police, if you work behind the bar, they're going to bust you because you're not allowed to work here. Uh, you don't have visas. And the Cretan girls were very um, uh, looked after. They weren't allowed to work in the bars. Their parents wouldn't let them. You know, they were very chaperoned everywhere. And, but where we were, Hanya, there was a big American naval base. So you've got all these American sailors with, you know, no girls to talk to, nothing to do in the evening. You know? And this is winter, so there were no tourists there. In the summer, no problem. You've got lots of Swedish tourists, lots of English tourists, loads of girls looking for a little holiday romance. But it's winter. So, so, so what they do is they pay you to sit in front of the bar and get the guys to, the guys to buy you drinks. You know, something. oh, you mean that was like... a job? What? That was a job. <laughs> like my hobby. Oh, but, before yeah. Tinder. This <laughs> 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 I was in a new relationship. But in the end, I was like, okay, it's the only thing we can do. You know, Chris was getting jobs and you know and again it's like how you got jobs is you went to a cafe in the morning at like some horrible six o'clock in the morning and you waited for you know the greek farmers to come and pick you up or the you know the olive the guy the olive trees uh, i'm anyway. curious so about decided- your your act or your yeah i guess your ex like you and chris i guess his name is you met mm-hmm. in crete did the whole, I guess, pre-digital, just just nomad, <laughs> the nomad thing together. When did you guys get married? Uh, we got married seven years later. So did you do this together so, for seven years? We did this together for seven years with a couple of gaps in between. Wow. You know, so there was a couple of times when we were like, oh, maybe practice isn't working or, you know, for various reasons. And we would take a gap and then we'd be like, no, it's working. <laughs> We're back together. But mostly it was because the commitment to travel meant that we never had very much money, you know, and we were always going where there was a little bit of work. I have to tell you a little bit more about the the Champagne Girl job, you know, because that was so so pivotal. So, you know, that is where I met, you know, some of the some amazing girls who I kept in contact with for 10 or 15 years. One of them has become one of my dear friends for life. And, who, you know, I lived with her in San Francisco for years as well. So 
some of the girls there that I met during that job became very much my traveling tribe um, who I would hook up with and meet with around the world, you know, and would uh, inspire me to go different places and try different things. And it, what was hysterical was, you know, you think, oh, champagne girls, so you might, you know, or rather um, provocatively and sexy. We're there in our jeans and our, you know, our baggy overalls and with our rucksacks, you know, at the end of the bar. You know? So it was hysterical. It was just such, it just not the stereotype at all. It was just really funny. It was just a girl, a bunch of traveling girls hanging out, having a great time. This would come and pick me up every night and all the American sailors knew I was in a relationship and um, they were just great guys. They were really great guys and they taught me to swing dance, which I have two left feet, so I'll always be grateful for that. <laughs> yes, so Chris and I traveled together for seven years and mostly it was in Greece and I loved Greece. It was just really fabulous. When Crete ended, Chris went back to England and I went off to Amsterdam and Jan, who was an English girl who I met um, as a bar girl and um, there was we lived in this wonderful political squat called Vias uh, and so that was a an amazing adventure but that would take you know years to go down that but it was very political it was interesting I came away from that a confirmed atheist not, no anarchist, <laughs> anarchist political <not> <laughs> in, in what way in the developers kept buying up large parts of Amsterdam where there is a huge housing shortage and where the price of housing is just like through the roof. Hang on to these properties for years and years and do nothing with them because they're just waiting for, you know, to force the prices up. There was lots of young people who decided this wasn't on and they took advantage of the old squatting laws that in Amsterdam are very liberal and started, you know, back in, I don't know, hundreds of years ago. And Vias was this beautiful, big, three-story old factory. And, and, you know, the windows were like floor to ceiling. And Amsterdam isn't a very tall city. So being three stories high, it was, you know, just like amazingly beautiful place to live. And there was, must have been a couple of hundred young people living there. And there were certain parts of the factory that was really old and decrepit. And, you know, people would tend to, you know, sort of clam together. So you'd have an English section, Dutch section. And, you know, everyone was very political and um, talking about anarchy. And uh, I've literally you know, heard about these places in museums. It's so crazy that you were there. They had a lot of these in Berlin, I think, back when it was like, obviously set, taken over by two totally different countries, or I should say four. So you stayed mm -hmm. in like one of those? Yes, I stayed in one of those. And it was, again, great adventure and a great way to meet people and just really, um, you know, kind of develop the whole political side. Because um, when I'd been in Manchester, I'd been quite political and I'd gotten out of it, you know. So it was interesting again to, you know, just sort of really meet some great people. And everybody was into the poetry of Bukowski and it was all very dark. <laughs> yeah. I, the job I got was actually working at, at McDonald's. <laughs> so I was very popular because I'd worked the night shift and I'd come back with everything that hadn't been sold. A common thread of you mentioning people and all of these incredible connections that you're making, uh, which Liv and I can definitely relate to that as like we've met also each other through traveling and know so deeply how 
meaningful those connections are. So I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, who is one of the most influential people you've met while traveling and what did they teach you perhaps? Uh, what in one sense, of course, meeting a person who I ended up marrying, that was, you know, quite influential on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as meeting somebody, who, uh, it's a girl called Jana, who was, I met when I was doing the um, Champagne Girl <laughs> in, uh, in Greece. And Jana is just this amazing, beautiful, wise woman who uh, now lives in Oregon and teaches um, drama therapy. And, you know, I haven't seen her in years, but we talk often, you know, on Facebook or, you know, so we talk very often. You know, I lived with her in San Francisco for probably a couple of years and we were in San Francisco together for, I think, four or five years. So she was like very close friend. And she was just, again, a very spiritual, beautiful woman who had a, a big effect on my life and my viewpoint of things, you know. Mm. What's one of the best things that Jana taught you? I think just love. Just a sort of very non-judgmental acceptance of everybody and just unhappiness. She's mm. one of these people who is just seems to be happy and positive all the time. Um, the man she's married to just been through, he's um, had a disease that has put him in a wheelchair and he just went through sepsis and had a terrible time and she thought she was going to lose him. But, you know, her strength and positivity through the whole thing is really, you know, an inspiration to me and her ability to say, stay happy, happy. And yeah, I think just that love and happiness and that, you know, being very open to all people was something I really learned from her, you know. And then I have another friend, Sue, who we all, Sue, Jana, Chris, and I all shared a, an apartment in San Francisco when I first moved there. She went off to do her own company um, quite a few years later. And, um, you know, she was very successful. And then she had a lot of health issues and a kidney transplant. And watching her through her journey and her strength and her um, determination to advocate for herself and stay positive that really inspired me and that really kind of helped me on my journey. Tina if you could tell somebody who's going through a big new revelation about perhaps cancer or a disease of themselves or a family member knowing what you know now and all of the you know the mindset that you required but also going through, you know, a lot of painful moments, what would you tell somebody like that? Um, I would tell them, you know, don't accept that what your oncologist is telling you is necessarily true. (laughs) You know, it's, it is very true and take their advice and try and make them, you know, your team member. And, but remember, you know, that you have a choice in this. And so, you know, there are radical remissions. There, there are people who have found ways to cure even the worst kind of cancer. And, you know, there's some amazing drugs coming up through the system. So it's really just don't give up hope and don't live like that, that you really have a death sentence. You don't. You have some control over this. You have some power over it. And, but mostly, you know, it, to really make that work, you have to come to peace with the diagnosis. You have to say, okay, this is a possibility. 
you know, I may not live more than two years. This is a possibility. Once these drugs stop working, cancer can, this cancer can be very fast. You know, mm. I mean, it was, as I said, I had a clean lab round two years before that. And it went from nothing showing to um, METs to my liver, METs to my lungs within two years. So, you know, it's stay with the fact that, yes, this is a possibility. And I need to um, sort of feel, how will I deal with that? I need to prepare myself for dealing with that. But mostly I need to live with the possibility that there are remissions. There are people who beat the odds and just do anything you can to be that person. And it really helps to have something to live for. So think about what your values are. Think about what you truly want to live for. And that will get you through it. <laughs> yeah. I love that you said that because I, I feel like from, from media and from stories that I've heard, there can often be such a sense of self-pity almost like, oh, why is this happening to me? Or, you know, a lot of us have discussions. Why do, why does this happen to good people? Like, like you as a prime example, you know, you're such a wonderful, optimistic, loving, adventurous soul. And you've been diagnosed with this, cancer and you know how did you ever find yourself I mean obviously with this what the advice that you were saying to have that inner peace with the diagnosis I can assume that you you know have come to that yourself too but did you ever go through that kind of self-pity a week a week ago I cried all day and that's the first time I've done it I have hardly cried through this whole uh, journey but a week ago I just couldn't stop crying I was having a scan which I expect to be positive and, you know, I, a positive result, not positive, but, you know, I expect my cancer, I feel like these drugs are really helping. But, you know, I'm having this scan and it's just tears just, just dripping down my face and I can't stop them. And I hate people seeing me cry, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this poor woman who's doing the uh, scan, she must be so embarrassed, you know, so I'm trying to wipe these tears off, you know. And there is also the element of guilt, mm-hmm. which is something re- that really is very surprising until you go through this you feel this sense of guilt and you start looking for what did I do wrong? You know, mm-hmm. how did I cause me cancer? You know, was there too many days sitting at that champagne bar slugging that up? You know? <laughs> so, you know, you start looking at things in your own life that you did and it's very hard not to blame yourself. And, it, you know, it's, I know that, um, you know, my family tends to think, oh, well, she's always been wild, well, she's always this wild life that's probably what caused the cancer. So it's, it's, you know, don't do that. (laughs) Do not feel guilty. Do not stop blaming yourself. That's such a beautiful thing to articulate. Like I imagine that is a strong feeling that people have in this situation. I guess both of you are kind of saying it in a similar way. Like why do bad things happen to good people? And it kind of just goes back to like, I don't know, we live our whole lives through our ego, thinking that we're in control. And in a lot of ways we can be, you know, we were talking about being restless, rebellious spirits who go out there and chase after the things we want. But look at us now, you know, I mean, God bless you, Tina, with what's going on in your life right now. And with the whole world, everything came to a standstill. So I guess this is all a sort of a sign from the universe that sometimes there's stuff we can't control. And you are handling this experience so beautifully like I think this is something I'll listen to years from now if I ever find myself in a similar situation and just remember your your joy and positivity 
and, and your humanness just like I so appreciate you I know you said like you were embarrassed by crying but I'm, I so appreciate you being vulnerable and saying that you just experienced that a week ago you know like that's you're, mm -hmm. you're experiencing all the emotions of this you know openly and from your heart and I think it goes you're, you're living your truth and when you're saying that you're living for something because you love you love life so much and this just shows how much you love it one thing i do want to say is that in this sounds like the sickest thing to say but in a weird sort of way going watching the whole covid experience happening at the same time meant that i couldn't really indulge in as much self-pity mm. you know because there was people torn away from their families not even having their family at their bedside having no chance to prepare at all you know, being alone in a hospital and, you know, and dying, you know, about six or seven days. So it was just such horrible, awful, this terrible disease, just like running rampant through the world. And that, um, I, you know, it felt indulgent to be self-pitying, even if I had two years to live, that's two years more than so many people. You're so, so in touch with humanity. Like you're, you're such a, and that probably does come from decades of traveling, like this sort of global mindset that I'm starting to realize most people around me don't really have. And it's a beautiful thing that I think we all possess where you're empathizing with not just the people you see, but the people all over the planet. Because I, I would have said the exact opposite. Like you could argue that because of COVID, you're extra depressed and scared and terrified. And you could spiral down that path because you are high risk. And you could be one of those people mm -hmm. that all of a sudden those two years turn into two weeks. And your mindset is incredibly admirable as we keep saying, because you're, you're not looking at it that way. And you're seeing like the, the value of connection to the greater good. I think it's really interesting. And this is going to be probably a tough one because you have led your life very much to the fullest, <laughs> not the type of person who uh, stays in a situation she doesn't want to be in because <laughs> society tells her she has to. But if 60-year-old Tina can look back at, I think you said you were 19 when you first started traveling, so somewhere around there, 19-year-old Tina, and give her advice, what do you think you would say now to that Tina back then? Um, be more careful of the men you choose in your life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there is something that was a little difficult, huh? I would, I would say um, let go of fear, for sure. You know, and one of the things my family used to say about me was that I had no fear because I would do such crazy things and hitchhike across Europe and, you know, just go wherever I wanted to be. And they, but, you know, my thing was that, yeah, no, I had fear, you know. And um, especially there was always, again, there was that kind of pull between survival and settling down and, and just being like a hedonist who just, you know, wants to explore everything. I, in my later life, I stayed in situations like um, I really wasn't happy in because I was afraid because I've suddenly, um, I was of an age when I just couldn't kick up and start again. And, you know, um, you know, I stayed with a business I wasn't happy with anymore. And, you know, I would like to, to have like, you know, I felt like I wasted some time in middle life. And, you know, finding the whole digital nomad, finding the whole web designing and um, that, kind of career I wish I'd done that 15 years earlier and just really kind of got into it and gone traveling again it took me 15 years to make that break after 40 to really start doing something I loved let go of fear 
you know. Mm. And this whole, um, you know, one of the things in Bali, there was a really, there's a really interesting um, program that is all over the world and it's called Fuck Up Night. Uh, and on Fuck Up Night in Bali, there was three different entrepreneurs on the stage whose business went south in 2008 during that crash. And the business I had at the time, but it took me five years to give it up. I just kept trying to make it work. And so that would be, if I really truly managed to live without fear, I would be going in a different direction and doing what I absolutely love and adore, which is being a digital nomad and designing webs and blogging. And it's just uh, given me, it gave me so much freedom, you know, mm. and be very careful who you hook up with. <laughs> As far as men are concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Yes. Words from the wise. So super appreciate it. Some people, (laughs) some people never do that. You know, you said, oh, it took me 10 to 15 years too long. Maybe, but you made that happen. You know, there are people on their deathbed who are like, I wish I traveled. I wish I didn't have that boring job working at a law firm my whole life. I wish I, you know, like that, that has never been you. So that's why I figured "Hmm, this might be a bit of a challenging question. For people who say, oh, it's too late to X, Y, or Z, like you doing that at 40, Mm -hmm. traveling the world and, you know, starting a job that you love. Like I know you said you wish you had done it sooner, but I just wanted to commend you on Mm -hmm. that too, because I think that's an important message for younger people to recognize that age is really just a number and you can restart and Mm -hmm. reset at any time. So that's, that's awesome. So true. Like our trip that we hung out Tina, we were all like, what? Most of the people there were probably under 30, except for obviously you and that other couple, yes. but who cared? You became my best friend yes. on that trip. Age is just a number. Who cares? And, you know, it's all about kindred yeah, spirits. You, really, you so much get that when traveling and you don't really, when you're not traveling, I find it's travelers have that attitude. Travelers are totally open the way that people who don't travel aren't, you know. Now, I sound a bit snobby, but I just find that to be the truth, you know. And Maybe I just love because they're you guys all stuck all in so their roles. Like in in regular life, you mm-hmm. would be like my boss's 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 boss, and so it'd be weird to be friends. Mm-hmm. Like people just right. like pay too much attention to the structures of society and work, as if they're like indicators. Yes. Of, but I've, I've never been that way. I mean, I will say you're right. It's mostly due to travel. But I think there can be people who are like this that aren't necessarily travelers. It's just rare and weird. Like my mom, one of her best friends is closer in age to me. And most people find that odd. Like she was the maid of honor in this wedding. And then that friend wound up having me in the wedding. And so me and my mom are in a bridal party together. Like that's just odd. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things, again, that I totally love is just finding so impressed with the people I meet in the 20s and 30s and yeah if anyone's going to change this world they are because the people I've met my travels you know um, recently you know the Bali trip was just like a perfect example and just these wonderful open caring people who you know really want to change the world and I'm just like oh my god I totally trust you guys to do it I'm sorry we made a mess of it (laughs) (laughs) Tina, no, it's okay. You you did the most you could to live life to the fullest. I I did want to question your response, like when you said you wanted to live without fear. To the onlooker, people like Lydia was saying before, probably see you as the ultimate epitome of someone who lived without fear. So what do you think you mean by those fears? Like, were you afraid of the opposite things that most people are afraid of? Like, you've always been a brave person 
adventurous, go with the flow kind of person? Like, what was it that you were, and you talked about it a little bit, you know, when you were in your 40s about like pulling the trigger on the business, but what was like sort of the main fear throughout your life? I, I ask because I think for me until the pandemic, I think my fear, and mm-hmm. no, even now I'll admit, I'm afraid of being boring. Like I don't ever want to be average and that's like my thing in my life. I just never want to be like everyone else. And that's what would terrify me, you know? Well, don't worry, Olivia. Olivia, you're never going to be like anybody else. You're never going to be boring. You're the least boring person I've ever met. So I wouldn't worry about that. Put that one aside. <laughs> right. No, I think it was, you know, it's kind of, so it wouldn't, I suppose I wouldn't really say it to my 18 year old self because my 18 year old self was living without fear. Um, except that, I was incredibly shy and so ridiculous. I was t- terrified of ridiculous things. Like talking to a librarian would terrify me. So everything I did, there was the kind of crazy shyness, fear behind, but I decided to ignore it and just blow through it and just live the life I wanted and get past that bit feeling of fear. But then, you know, when I got to the point where the biological clock was ticking and I wanted to have children, you know, I got to the point, you know, I Chris my ex-husband, um, who I will always love and adore, had some major issues where it was obvious he was never going to be able to provide for children or a wife. You know? So it was all up to me. And we started this incredible business um, in Texas. And we, just out of that desire for to be able to provide for children and to be able to have a house and stability. And, um, and you know, I never was able to have children. And so when that kind of dream started to end, it was that I had come to the point where I felt the security of owning my own home. I felt the security of having my own business. And um, I loved the entrepreneurial life. It was that fear. And, you know, through a series of the breakdown of the marriage and, you know, different types of ill health that I'd been through before the breast cancer, uh, it's almost like the, from 40 to 20 has been a whole period of learning to let go of things. And, you know, so I suppose I mean, that's what I mean by you can let go of the feel that you need to own a house or even have a roof over your head, you know. Because <laughs> I knew, I just looked at my life and thought, when were you happiest? And I was happiest when I was freewheeling around Europe and not worrying about any of that stuff. And so I just, you know, decided I need to take my life back to that you know, and just let go, you know, and, um, you know, and it was really a good job because from doing that, when the breast cancer was diagnosed, I was able to come home to my family um, and there was nothing that I was holding on to that I was leaving or letting go from. So I was able to come into this beautiful, loving environment and experience my nieces and nephew and my parents in a way that I hadn't been able to do for years because, you know, I was living in America for so long, traveling around the world, you know, traveling. So, yeah, so that was, I, I suppose, um, mm. really just, you, you can survive. You can, you can always recreate yourself. You know, there's nothing, um, your health is really the only thing that you need. And, you know, so take care of that. <laughs> yeah. And your, your health and your family and friends. And if you have that, and if you nurture those relationships, the universe will take care of you. So beautiful. Yeah, there was a lot in there. I mean, your health is the most important thing, definitely. And I love that you are able to speak so fondly of your ex-husband still 
with a sense of adoration. And I'm curious, like what, what was it like to, to go through a divorce? How, how old were you? I guess, how far into the marriage were you? Like, tell I, us I was, a little bit about that. Um, I was 40 and we'd been together for 20 years because I was 21 mm. when I met him. And I said there was a couple of breaks, um, you know, with different situations. Um, and, you know, I, Chris was definitely the love of my life. I, you know, I loved and adored him but he had a lot of mental health issues. And um, I think there's people who become addicts from the very second they have their very first drink of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, Chris was one of those people. You know, he also got in, you know, drugs and alcohol, cocaine, you know. So it was that whole addiction process. You know, it just kind of deteriorated over the years when I lost him. Yeah, and he he died about eight years after we divorced, and you know it was just all a long period of deterioration, and it was you know so it's very horrible. You lose someone like when you lose someone to addiction, you lose them a thousand times over, you know, and you know alcohol will take your brain, but cocaine takes your soul, you know, and it just really the person is no longer there who you fell in love with by by the end, and it's very sad because. You know, you feel, well, if we truly understood it as a disease, wouldn't we stick with that person through it? But it's, it's too hard to do because they become so kind of aggressive to anyone who wants to stand between them and their addiction. Mm-hmm. So for your own sanity, you have to get out. Again, I think that's such a sign of strength, Tina, that, you know, you were able to pull yourself out of that situation as much as you loved him and put your self-love first. And I like to think we were talking about spirituality in the beginning and I don't know if angels are real, but I like to believe in them. And I wonder if he's better, his soul is still tethered to yours and he's better in your life as someone who's watching over it and helping you go through this very difficult time right now in a way that feels more peaceful for Mm -hmm. both of you. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. I, I can't imagine what that's like to go through. And each layer of your story just shows how strong and incredible of a person you are. Like each, each turn of the story from the fun and the free-spirited to the, the heavy has been really incredible to hear today. Yeah, it's truly been an honor, Tina. You honestly had me in tears. Uh, because I was so touched and moved and yeah very honored to you know listen to you and hear your story of resiliency and love and openness it's it's really beautiful um I'm getting emotional now just thinking about all of it um from your point of view who are you really Tina if you could sum it up for us and however that feels natural to you where you are now gosh who am I really oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I think again it's just who am I really I'm a traveler you know I'm a traveler through this lifetime you know and uh, you know Oh gosh, yeah. how many times do I say you know can we just start this again <laughs> we can crop the you knows out don't worry <laughs> so who am I really? I, I think it's just 
it's someone who views life as a journey, you know, and it's really being stuck in one house through a year of COVID and not being able to have that release of travel. Then you sort of take your traveling to your mind and to books and, you know, it just really is all about the journey. And my whole life, it's been tough for me to be in the moment. I've always been a planner, always planning the next, the, the, you know, the next round or what to do next. You know, in a situation where you can't plan, where you don't really know what your future is, um, then you're finally forced to take that spiritual journey. You know, you're finally forced to really kind of dive into the journey of the mind. And it really is the, um, the same thing, you know, it's just, it, the, the moments become macro moments, you know, and you're just looking at that, the, the beautiful, the beauty that is in now. That is so well said. I swear there's so many quotable moments from you on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the journey of the mind is exactly what I've been focusing on to make it through this crazy time. And you will probably be a traveler in every lifetime beyond. Maybe the next one just might not be in human form. Who knows? Right. <laughs> um, wow, what, a, what an awesome episode, Tina. We can't thank you enough for coming on air. Uh, we do offer you the opportunity to kind of just share in case anybody wants to reach out to you and be, befriend you. I know you also have like a um, consulting business that if you want, you can talk about briefly here. But where can people find you on the interwebs, Tina? Okay. Um, let's see. Gosh, where can you find me now? Um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the easiest way to find me is at my email, which is tinatucci16 at gmail.com. Um, eventually, I'll be back working again. So anyone who wants to send me an email and wants to connect, that would be lovely. And once I get back um, working, it's very nice to make some connections. But just anyone who's anyone who's going through what I'm going through right now, if they want to send me an email and they want support or any kind of help with this journey, I'd love to reach out and connect to people. And if it's a family member, um, and I have a great reading list <laughs> for everybody who's kind of going through this sort of thing. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Who Are You Really? We'll be back next Thursday, same time, same place. You can listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at Who Are You Really Podcast. Or feel free to join our Facebook group, The Humans of Who Are You Really, to connect to some of the people who have been on air and other deep thinkers and feelers. If you liked this episode and want to continue listening, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts and stories. Until next time, sending love to you wherever you are.